If you are just getting started with the NGSS and 3D teaching, I want to invite you to check out Bring Wonder Back, an on-demand video series designed to help you understand why moving through the textbook and teaching topics is actually crushing your students' curiosity and what you can do instead. It's going to help you shift the work of learning where it belongs by building your understanding of explorations and discovery-based teaching practices. And finally, I'm going to help you take the first steps toward transforming your students into scientists through 3D learning, which is really what the NGS is all about. You can access this video series at iExploreScience/wonder and get ready to bring wonder engagement and a love for learning back to your science class. All right, to the show. Welcome to the Teaching Science in 3D podcast. My name is Nicole Van Tassel. And I'm Erin Sadler. And we are two science teachers dedicated to helping you cut through the confusion and meet the intent of the NGSS so you can master all three dimensions. The NGSS can seem totally overwhelming, but implementing these standards doesn't need to be. Hi everyone, it's Erin, and I'm just going to quickly introduce this episode. A couple of months ago, in the NGSS for Middle and High School Facebook group, Nicole interviewed four special education experts. They discussed the challenges of using the NGSS in a classroom with students with diverse learning needs. This is the audio from that interview. Hi, my name is Nicole Van Tassel uh, with iExplore Science and founder of iExplore Academy, and I am here with some awesome NGSS experts, and we are going to be talking about the challenges of using the NGSS and these three-dimensional um, instructional approaches with our, our special populations of students, so um, English language learners and special ed students, um, some of the strategies that don't work, what we should do instead, um, and just how we can, can use these strategies in our you know, regular ed science classes, but to meet the needs of our diverse learners. So I'm going to go ahead and let these experts introduce themselves, because they can obviously talk about themselves better than I can, and then we will dive into the content. So we can just go ahead, Brian, do you want to go first, and we can just go around the loop. Sure. Hi, my name is Brian Rager. I am the science supervisor for the Wicomico County Schools in Salisbury, Maryland. I've uh, been in education for 26 years. I taught for 13 years, and every year I had a wide range of students, including a lot of students who receive special education support and a lot of uh, EOL students as well. We have a lot of those in our district. And for the past 13 years, I've been the, uh, been the science supervisor supporting about uh, 65 science teachers who were teaching uh, about uh, 7,000 secondary students here in the district. Big district. Awesome. Go ahead, Kristen. Hi, my name is Kristen Rademacher. Um, I am a consultant now, but I spent the last 20 years um, teaching special education uh, and science at the high school level. I'm currently doing a um, instructional coach role at uh, a local middle school, and I also am a procedural coach at a uh, for a local school district doing um, IEP. So I stay very active in, in both worlds. I do a lot of things with uh, NSTA, the National Science Teachers Association, and I'm also president elect of the Illinois Science Teachers Association. Awesome, thanks. All right, uh, Barbara, we'll just keep going. Hi, um, I'm Barbara Hopkins. I am uh, partially retired, even though I'm working 40 hours a week. <laughs> Um, I am the former director of science education for New Hampshire, so I continue to work predominantly across New Hampshire. I have um, a couple of grants that I'm working on with the Department of Defense on bioengineering um, and regenerative medicine, but my uh, history is on inquiry science and goes way back about 40 years. I was a high school chemistry teacher. but. Um, my work at the state level has been with ELL and um, SPED teachers uh, and, and trying to get teachers to collaborate a little bit more. Uh, teachers in their own classrooms and teachers who are um, trying to provide uh, you know, support for these students. And um, there are students, they need to be in the classroom. Absolutely, awesome. And Marquita. Good morning. I'm Dr. Marquita Blades, and I am based out of the Atlanta, Georgia area. 
I've been in education for about 20 years now. I'm consulting full-time. I've been doing that for the past three years, but I spent 16 years in the classroom teaching at the high school level, a combination of biology, chemistry, and physics, but chemistry being my primary course. Uh, throughout that time, I would say about, yes, chemistry sister, I would say <laughs> about uh, 60%, maybe 60 to 75% of that time teaching team taught classes. So um, a lot of my practice, and especially with chemistry, I had to learn how to uh, serve the SPED and ELL populations within that course, which is considered to be an upper level college prep course. Um, so what I, I have found over the years are practical ways to make science accessible for all students without, uh, without sacrificing the rigor that should also exist. So what I'm doing now is basically uh, traveling around the country. I have a few seminars that I uh, conduct to schools and school districts where I share with teachers practical ways that they can turn their science classroom into a three-dimensional learning environment overnight. Awesome. Awesome. Okay, so I'm super excited to dive into these. Okay, so before we get into like the strategies and like what we should be doing, why what are some of the challenges that we face when we are working, when we're using NGSS style strategies and three-dimensional instruction and exploration and discovery and all of that with like these special learners? So what, what have you guys encountered that, you know, your teachers are running into that our listeners or viewers or whatever, you know, can relate to? And you guys can just kind of hop in. <laughs> well, I'll, yeah. I'll start with just general teachers. I mean, you know, the teachers are struggling themselves with the three-dimensional um, teaching pedagogical style and, and giving up some of the power in the classroom to children or their students. It's a huge issue. So that becomes, I think, an underlying piece that it doesn't matter who the students are, there's an issue there. That, that's true, yeah. Brian, I'd say, yeah, I would say in terms of especially special education students, but in general, the first thing I, I work with teachers when they look at NGSS is that these are really speaking to students, not to teachers. Uh, that's that's the first thing, especially we dive into the practices and they looked at the practices and yeah, these are things, the things that we do, but they need to be things the students are doing. And too often, uh, especially with struggling learners, teachers kind of revert back and, and yeah. trying to make things accessible to students take it I would say too far and make it too easy and not challenging enough and not really engaging kids in the practices so I think teachers really need to look at how they're making modifications and ensuring that these modifications include opportunities for all their students to really deeply engage in 3D science. I can relate to that I feel like in my like my classroom um, and with like our special education teacher who would push into my classroom. And he didn't have a background in science, so that you know played a role in it too. But a lot of times the way he wanted to adapt things was, well, let's just give them the content and have them do something with the, con you know, it, it was taking away the skills part or taking away the practices part. Um, and instead making it more just like manipulating the content in some way or, and, and yeah. yeah. I think, I think the kind of the first grasp at, at, at modifying is, is removing the 3D. Yeah. Focusing <laughs> just on the DCIs and giving them ways to play with that with fill in the blank and crossword puzzles, and, but right. no deep engagement in, in doing science. That is true, yes. I would have to agree that, um, you know, we did, we did our, our populations of um, students with special needs and our EL population a great disservice by modifying everything before we gave it to them. So I would say what's hard for teachers, um, and I agree with what you said, Barbara, about like this is really hard for teachers. The shift is hard. It's hard to give up that, that control because it's a little bit scary, right? Um, but we have to stop saying like, my kids can't. And that, that's really hard. Like I have to do this for them because my kids can't. Um, I was not a believer in the NGSS at first. 
Like I spent a lot of hours in training and building storylines. And I was listening to um, Dr. Reiser and Dr. Krychak talk about um, what this looked like in the classroom. And I was thinking that might be great for your kids, but my kids can't my special ed kids can't do this. And then when I piloted the unit that I wrote, I really had to go back and, and eat my words because it was an amazing thing to see them engaged in a science classroom when they were traditionally marginalized in that science classroom. So I think that's the biggest thing is to give the students the opportunities to show you what they know and what they're able to do before we try to change all of the stuff we're asking them to do. That's awesome. And, like and that. I, some of the work that I've done with Rita and, and um, the ELL teachers, you know, they, they get it. They do get mm -hmm. it. Um, we just finished a four-week series and we had ELL um, instructors for districts in that series. And um, the difficulty is, you know, the teachers <laughs> are, um, again, unnerved, not just by the pedagogical piece, but by, I don't speak that language. How am I going to do that? And so, um, I mean, we have wonderful examples of um, how conversation, floating, learning on a sea of talk, and even if the language is different, students help each other out. And it's such a great opportunity for our students who don't speak another language. So, so that piece, um, and, and we always rely on the whole idea of activity before concept, concept before vocabulary. And I've been in national conversations where we have talked about who owns the word, word wall, who owns it. In other words, don't put it up there if you're the only one using it. Your kids need to be using it, right? <laughs> Yeah, I, it reminds me of a conversation I had with a really, really great teacher, uh, but was really struggling to teach, to, to turn to three-dimensional teaching and to get away from the vocabulary before content. And the teacher said to me, I, I can't do that. If I don't give the students the vocabulary first, that's yeah. like, it's like sending a soldier into battle without a weapon. And I thought, my gosh, that's, that's, that's certainly one way to look at it. But I, I don't think, one, we're, we're not dealing life and death. And, and we want to give students opportunities. First, failing is okay in science and instruction. It may not be okay on the battlefield, but it's okay. We can fail forward. And, and students need to have those opportunities to, to do things. I think with the ELL, I just had a conversation yesterday with our ELL specialist about the importance of providing students, even a classroom with multiple different languages, providing them with a common experience. Mm -hmm. uh, of doing some science and then using that as a framework upon which we can build some some language acquisition. Well, and learning language in context when you're manipulating and and you're working in teams. I mean, even when I was teaching chemistry, I'm, New Hampshire has known that it's not like super diverse, even though we've got like 44 different languages spoken in some of our cities here. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, how do you uh, really work with the strengths the students bring and how are you culturally responsive and just being open to that? And well, how do you, how do you say that? How do you use this? Uh, it, it's, it's really, I think, important kind of embracing our, our kids. And even though we don't have like maybe a huge across the state diverse population here, you know, we have what would I would refer to, and I think of them fondly as my non-four-wall kids. In other words, they learn differently. And so what we're talking about here services all kids. And so it's, it's valuable. Right. I think for a long time, we used language as a barrier for education. I know I, I taught life science. So um, freshman level biology was basically a vocabulary course. If you looked at our common assessments, it was a lot of memorization of vocabulary and maybe with a few kind of open-ended questions mixed in with a list of vocabulary words to use within those prompts, right? Um, but we can't, we have to step back and really look at exactly what you're saying. We can't use language as a barrier for education. So it's really about meeting students where they're at and, and really allowing them to, to express what they know and whether or not they use the word condensation, right? Because we have that illusion of explanatory depth, right? Where kids can rattle off vocabulary and definitions and they sound really, really smart. They can't give you 
a very simple explanation about why it's wet on one side of the window and not the other, or why my cup has water on the outside when there's no holes in it. So, you know, we, we've done that in education for a very, very long time, and it's hard to kind of step back and, and examine our practice. Yeah. I, I think one aspect, too, with, like, the vocabulary instruction, because I, I know this comes up a lot of times, especially I hear from teachers, well, the IEP says I'm supposed to front load the vocabulary. I'm supposed to. And in some, in some disciplines, I think it might make sense, like maybe in a language arts class, if you're learning a synonym for chair, okay, I already conceptually know what a chair is. So I can learn this new vocabulary word for chair, maybe like I'm expanding my vocabulary. I'm I'm learning it in that sense. But in a science class, when you don't have that concept, like it makes sense that you would need to learn the concept first before you're learning the vocabulary. So like I understand in maybe some context that kind of approach works. Maybe, I don't, I don't know for sure it does, but I mean, I maybe where it comes from. But I do think like exactly what we're saying here, we, our students are not understanding the concept behind the term, so then we just lose this whole, um, so, so anyway, with that vocabulary in mind, as a strategy, front-loading it, it doesn't work. What are we supposed to do instead? Like, we are supposed to be teaching the concept first, but in terms of helping our, like, special education students and ESL, like, what specifically can we do to help them maybe then connect the concept to the term or, um, or what do we do when the IEP does say that we're supposed to front load it? Do we just ignore the IEP? Or I, I think that? <laughs> like, no, I will, I will say, like, no, you can't ignore an IEP. Um, but I, you know, guilty. I, I wrote pre-teach vocabulary probably on every single IEP I wrote for 15 years. And then when we shifted our classrooms, um, I stopped writing that because it was doing the kids a big disservice. And when you look at, you know, science classes in general, um, you know, the special ed students and the ELL students are not the only students in that room that don't know that vocabulary. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. it's all the kids. Yeah. So I think one of the things that, that we did is we took that pressure off of the kids for memorization of all of that vocabulary. We really focused on, can you explain what you're seeing? Can you draw me a model of what you think is happening? Can you, you know, explain it in your own words, what you think is going on here? And that took the pressure off of not just, you know, our, our special ed and our EL kids, but it took the pressure off of all the kids and made them more engaged and more, and they took more ownership of their learning because it wasn't like we have to memorize these 25 vocabulary words in order to perform on a test in two weeks. Yeah, what, one I thing I'm going to say that um, the traditional form of inquiry, um, at least here in Georgia, when we first started to move our courses from, um, I would guess we would say the old school way of teaching science, where we introduce the topic and then we introduce the vocabulary, the students take notes and they do a lab at the end. And that's a lab, by the way, that we've built them up to already know what they should yes. expect. <laughs> Yeah, confirmation lab. Yeah. To, to prove to them that everything you just told them is the truth. Yeah, so it's true. I didn't, I didn't lie to you. But when we, we moved from that into what was the traditional form of inquiry, I realized that students were struggling to kind of make a, to come up with this procedure that they were supposed to investigate because they had nothing to base the investigation on. They didn't know what questions to ask because they, they didn't have any foundation to connect it to. So moving students out of that, I found when it came to teaching vocabulary was just to present the situation and ask everybody in a very simple form of what do you think will happen if, and allowing them to see that entire process and scaffolding, scaffolding them through the entire inquiry process first, without ever mentioning a vocabulary word, allowing them to say things like, um, it got hot, or asking them to look at their data and, and saying, what happened to the numbers? And just letting them say the numbers are getting bigger. I wouldn't even use the term increasing until it was time for us to do maybe a formal report. I would allow the students to get through the entire inquiry process where they explored first, 
then tell me what you did to see these observations. So not in advance tell me what you're gonna do, but play around with these materials. This is what's available to you. And then after that, I would say, now tell me what you did in order to notice that. And then the students were able to come up with reasonable steps that could be taken to perform an investigation. And only after they've done that would I then start to introduce the formal terminology connected to those concepts. And now as I'm bringing these things up, I can say to students, remember when you saw this in the lab? This is an example of it. And they were able to make those connections a lot better. And again, I, it's not just for your, your IEP students, that helped all of the students to be able uh -huh. to. And there's a ton of research on the um, level of conversation. I mean, one of the things, you know, the accessibility to the more conversational um, that you can be and, and not using those big words invites more students to the front and to participate. And, and we hear an awful lot, um, you know, my kids aren't motivated. <laughs> and sometimes, you know, especially it's interesting, but it's a high school. I have to really like, remind them, you know, maybe you need to give the kids a chance to play. Right. Give them some play time with the materials, with the concepts, so that now they're starting to wonder about things without you directing them on how to wonder, because that is allowing you to do the heavy lifting, not the kids. Brian, uh, do you have something before I... Yeah, I was just going to say that in, in my 26 years, I think the, the NGSS really is probably the most powerful tool that we have for building equity in, in science education. And I think that's really a lens we need to look at it through, not just that this is how we're going to teach science, but this is really a tool that we can use to really level the playing field for all students. It takes out that, that uh, prominence we, that we've traditionally placed on vocabulary. I taught biology. Our state test really was a glossary test for years. The kids had to pass to graduate. And that's gone. And, and the, the assessments we've, we've tackled for years, the constructing of the state, state assessment uh, for science, the new one that's yeah. just rolling out now in high school. And uh, it, it's, it's a test that I think we can almost be proud to say that we're teaching the test because we're not just teaching discrete terms to kids. We're teaching them how to think and how to, how to behave like a scientist, how to uh, take advantage of and use the science and engineering practices and cross-cutting uh, concepts to make sense of phenomenon. Um, those things aren't necessarily vocabulary driven. They're really experience driven and practice driven. And uh, if, we, if we start with that approach, we really level the playing field for a lot of our students, whether they're special education or ELL, and, and remove some of the barriers that kind of get in their way to, from the start. That's true. So building off of kind of what Marquita had brought up too with questioning, because um, this is another thing I hear from teachers a lot, is that um, my students are special ed students, so they don't ask questions or something. Like what, and I mean, really you could probably say that about all, like any group of students, because I feel like, especially when you get to middle, well, elementary students ask a bazillion questions all the time, um, <laughs> at least, well, lower elementary. Um, I don't know about middle elementary, whatever. Middle and high school, they start to ask less questions. They, whatever, I don't think school like drives it out of them. It's sad. But how do we, are there, are there things that we can do to help our, and you kind of started talking about this, um, Marquita, like things that we can help our special ed and all students, you know, with this questioning and, and getting them to ask questions and I do. I just remember one teacher was like, "My students are special ed, and they don't. They won't ask. But they, I can't get them to ask questions, or because I don't know. There was a connection there in her brain between the special needs of their, her students and their ability to ask questions. And I guess I could be ESL too, or whatever. Well, and a lot of it is also dependent upon how the teacher is introducing it. So the phenomena-based teaching allows for you know you you know, searching for what is going to be that, that piece um, that really gets kids engaged in thinking. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, you know, the teachers struggle with that, but, you know, it doesn't hurt us to ask kids, poll them, you know, what do you find interesting in the world that you've been wondering about? And um, I think we miss those opportunities to really Barbara, get kids around think... things they're interested in. Oh, I'm sorry, Barbara. I think we miss the mark with that sometimes because we reach too far uh, looking for the phenomenon. I think we always 
try to focus too much on those major catastrophic events that we think are going to grab the students attention when it's really just the everyday occurrences the things that they wonder about when they're walking to school or the things that they wonder about when they're at the park that's really going to reel them in and so i think the way to get them asking more questions is to base our phenomenon on more things that they have actually seen and experienced in everyday life and not always just trying to blow them away with uh, some earth-shattering event. And we use the term phenomena do not need to be phenomenal. Yeah. <laughs> we use that exactly. all the time. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. No, it's, it's the everyday stuff that they wonder about. Absolutely. Well, and I think what's important and the beauty of phenomena-driven learning is, you know, you can almost take anything and make it in, into a phenomena that's going to, you know, pull kids in and get them engaged. But we also, you know, have to make sure in that is that whatever it is, we're asking them to be able to explain by the end that we're anchoring their learning in that phenomena and that it can be broken down into conceptually appropriate pieces that they can figure out along the way. Because there's a lot of cool stuff out there that we still can't, that science can't explain yet. So to introduce that to the kids, you know, does not make a good phenomena. And I think that's where sometimes we get caught up and like, that's so cool, but we can't explain it. Mm -hmm. So I like what you said about, you know, everyday things are really important or, or what do we think about this? You know, what do you notice and what do you wonder? And to say that special ed students don't ask questions, um, well, sometimes that takes a little prompting because for so long, you know, they didn't do a lot of speaking in, yeah. in the science classroom. So utilizing strategies like the driving question board and those, those kinds of strategies have really, really opened up and, and like you said, Brian, leveled that playing field, you know, for, for all of our students. You know, when traditionally we had like four or five kids out of a class of 30 that did most of the talking and most of the, you know, engaging with the teacher, now this is the opportunity for every student to have a question on that board. It validates their thinking, it validates their ideas, and they become more engaged in, in what's going on in the classroom. And, and, I think and for me, that was a huge game changer. And the modeling helps because the teachers, you know, turn and talk, think, pair, share. We're using all of those different things to get kids who are quieter to speak up. But I think it's also allowing for the drawing, for example, and, and modeling and there's many ways of communicating. And so how do you um, engage them in doing those things so it makes them want to start wondering or thinking. I also think that when we've been doing this, we've always talked about we have to go deep, we have to go deep, but we were never explicit about how to go deep. And the NGSS helps us with that. Well, and I think we also have to look at what we go that, deep. That going Sorry? Barbara, you cut out. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. About going deep. It, we, we were never very explicit. We just, uh, it was like inquiry back in 95. You know, oh, inquiry is important, but we weren't explicit about what does that look like in the classroom. Going deep, what does that look like in the classroom? How do you continue to probe? And how do you settle that you're not going to answer all the questions? That, that also is important. Well, and I think you bring up a good point about what do we mean about going deep? Because throwing more vocabulary and more memorization at them is not going deep. And I look back and I think about, like, why was I having them memorize the Krebs cycle again? Like, <laughs> really? What was I thinking? Nicole's group yesterday. Oh, yeah, we posted all the stupid things that we had to memorize in school. I had to memorize how to fold a map. I'm not even joking. Earth science class, not, not how, like, a map works, how to fold a map. It was a test we had to take. And kids would look at you today like, like, you know, don't you just pull it up on your phone? Yeah, like, what's that? <laughs> and this is why so many students have not engaged in speaking, yeah. answering questions, or asking them because mm -hmm. they didn't have all of those facts memorized. Then they called out that answer and it was wrong. But when we teach in a three-dimensional learning environment, there really are no wrong answers. They're able to use experiences to justify their thinking. So everyone has something valuable to contribute. 
and, and what Brian said earlier about this really kind of being the best thing that could have happened mm -hmm. to our science instruction, I really agree with that because now every student has an entry point to our content. Yeah, yeah it's so, just up to yeah. us as teachers and, and leaders to make sure we're doing that well. Yes. Uh, what I don't want to see is, and I've seen it, is people kind of reverting back to the old way. So, for example, early on, 2011, the framework came out and we had the practices and I introduced them to teachers at a PD at the beginning of the year. I can remember clearly up on the screen and they all shook their heads. Yeah, we do these things. Well, they're not for <laughs> you to do. And questioning was probably the first one. And I still had that conversation after every observation. Tell me about the practices that your, your students used in this lesson. And they poke around and they, they glance up at the poster that I made for them. It says do science and has the practices listed. And, and, and they say questioning because I asked some really good questions. And, and you did. And that's great. But that's not what the practices are all about. You need to be giving students experiences and things to see and do that cause them to ask questions. Yeah. And, and then I see, and I, I felt it coming and I got, tried to get in front of them. And I said, so I gave them these posters that said, do science. And I listed the practices and I don't teach them in terms of a list. And I saw that one time and I, and, and, you know, list the, list the practices on the quiz. I'm like, that's method. not what it's for. These are, <laughs> these are tools you need to, you need to know and be able to use, but this isn't the old way of memorizing things like memorizing the steps of the scientific method. And right. you had a big, uh, how many steps where this tour year? goes down. Yeah, exactly. And this um, is a little bit aside, but like one of the things that I found really important was to have administrators go through training because they're yes, risk in the classroom and in order for them to take the risk, they need to know their, their, their administrator has their back. Yeah. They understand. One of the things that I've put together is um, we, had done a survey across the state of what businesses were looking for in terms of soft skills. And I took all of the soft skills that more than 50% of the businesses were looking for, and I completely could overlay them with the practices. Nice and then I went to monster.com, I went to Indeed, all of the different places that have discussion about what are those job skills for yeah. all kinds of jobs, not science. Yeah. And the practices are very loud and clear, you know, the collaboration, the analysis piece, the, the being able to communicate, all of problem solving is huge, huge across businesses. Yeah, and for sure, I, I agree with you said the administrative support. And one thing I've done is is provide PD for our building level administrators in terms most specifically what 3D science is and what the practices are. And the idea that, you know, you walk down the hall and you hear a lot of noise coming out of the science room. That that might be a good thing. Yeah, uh, that's that not a red flag. Definitely run in there and take a look at it and see what's going on. But I've also uh, challenged them to ask the teachers when you're walking down the hall between classes and you see a, a science teacher. Instead of just, hey, how's it going today? Ask them what practice were their students using in class today? What are the cross-cutting concepts the students were taking advantage of to make sense of? What's the phenomenon your students are investigating? And if we can pull the, the building level administrators sort of onto our side and help drive that conversation, I think that's going to push hey, us down the road. Who's talking more? Who's yeah. talking more? Is it the teacher or yeah. the kids? Are they talking about it? Yeah. So in terms of like um, concrete adaptations or like should we be like actually making specific adaptations for our like sped and esl students or are these things that are just we're doing things for all of our students or what if we are making these adaptations what what kind of what do they look like in this classroom or you know what 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 does adaptation and differentiation i guess look like it's kind of two prong. One, the first prong is is using some universal design, and you know, trying to incorporate activities and, and strategies that are going to make a classroom accessible to everyone, no matter if it's a special ed or an ELL heavy section or or not. But then there are definitely specific things that you want to do, particularly if you have classes that are are concentrated with high numbers of students. So we're starting a, a program next year in our district where we're gonna, calling it the Newcomers Program, where our our newest to the country ELL learners are going to be concentrated for at least a couple periods of day, a day in some of their core classes. Uh, and we're definitely going to have some, some specific strategies 
to help them access the curriculum while at the same time they're, they're building their language skills. Because really at that point, that's primary. We want them to, but we want them to learn science and we want them to learn it in the same way they're going to learn it when they're, when they're entering the general population. Um, so there's some tools and strategies we're going to use with them, but there needs to kind of be a gradual release and, and make sure we're preparing them for what comes next. I know in our discussions with the ELL uh, instructors that were in our workshops these last four weeks, one of the things we, we talked about was having um, whatever the uh, unit is, the storyline that you're embarking on, what are the materials that are going to be part of that? And, and actually having like a little, I don't know, shoebox, if you will, of some of the materials so that um, as the newcomers, if you will, are meeting with their ELL person, that they are just having discussion, how do you use these things? What are these things? And, and, and literally having a general conversation about it so they are ready to uh, feel more comfortable engaging with the class in the actual activities. I think and as far, oh, go ahead, Kristen. Oh, I was gonna say, as far as, you know, looking at accommodations and modifications, um, there's no, one way how to do things because obviously the the teacher knows the students best so you know what you do for a student who might be nonverbal or autistic looks a lot different than maybe your your high functioning um, student who might just be in there for a little bit of you know reading or or math support right but one thing that I did find that was really really important and I think I said it at the beginning is I stopped modifying everything before I let the students see it. Because if, if you really want students, um, if you really want to meet students where they are, you have to give them the opportunity to show you what they know and what they're able to do. And I found that, you know, with the NGSS, it saved me a huge amount of work on modifications because it is so fluid. You know, when a student, when all students are asked to make a model, you know, Everyone can do that. And then you can look at what your what all of your students are doing and, you know, give them feedback appropriately to move them from where they are to where you want them to be able to go next. And I think, you know, whether that's the accommodation might be allowing them to have a picture to start with on their model and where they're adding components and, and showing those interactions and explaining those interactions between the components versus a blank piece of paper that some people might want to choose to use. But, um, you know, that's just a good strategy for, for all students. So I think allowing kids the opportunities to show what they know in multiple modalities really is that natural and that like organic differentiation that comes with the NGSS without like, I have to modify this test by eliminating one of their four choices. Right. I, I was going to say something along those same lines as what Kristen, Kristen just said, taking that problem based approach to learning and just presenting things in such that you're asking students, how can we, and then whatever that is that you want them to do, how can I make an Alka-Seltzer dissolve faster? And what I'm really asking the students about is reaction rate, you know, maybe temperature of water and reaction rate, but I'm not gonna use any of that loaded terminology. But if I ask all of the students, how can I make this tablet dissolve faster? And then give them <clears throat> opportunities to find ways to do that, in doing so, I'm going to discover any misconceptions that they may have because the prediction they make is going to tell me the level of background that they have. And from there, I can decide if I want to build into collaborative groups around what some of those common misconceptions were. And the beauty of this accommodation is that when we ask students, how can you do something? And then we allow them to come up with ways to solve the problem. We're not only giving um, the lower level students an opportunity to express what they know, but those higher level students now have an opportunity to explore ideas that we probably wouldn't have even introduced at this level anyway. And so we're not preventing those students from moving ahead should they be in a position to do so. Because I do want to mention that our gifted population is considered a special ed population. And I think a lot of times they are left out of this conversation when we talk about 
accommodations because the assumption is, well, if they're gifted, then they already know how to access the content um, in multiple <laughs> ways. And that is simply not the truth. They need accommodations as well. And, and right. Really and we find that they, I'm oh, sorry. I'm sorry. Um, uh, we, we find that they struggle to make these shifts even more than those um, students that have traditionally struggled in the science classroom because they've learned how to play school. They're like so they're good, good at, the at memorization. They know all the rules. They know yeah. how to play it. Yeah. And they're like, you're switching the rules. What are you doing? Yeah. They just want to know what, what do we want them to do? And they'll do it and they'll memorize it and they'll, yeah. It's gone. I'm really glad, Marquita, you brought up the misconceptions because as I've been working with teachers, you know, they're afraid. They're like, what if what if the students bring in misconceptions? Yeah. Like that's great. It's revealed yeah. instead of it being hidden somewhere. <laughs> My gosh, that well, is so I, I start with the misconceptions. And I will just post uh, different symbols around the rooms and I will just throw out a common misconception. And I'll tell the students, now move to the symbol that, that best uh, fits your understanding of this statement. And then once they get there, I'll tell them, now uh, tell me why you chose that symbol as it relates to this statement. And whatever they tell me is gonna give me a very clear picture if they buy into that misconception or if they, they understand what's wrong with it, they're going to tell me, oh, well, I disagree with that statement because you said this word and I don't think that word is correct. And then for the ones that totally agree with the misconception, again, that tells me where to go next in my instruction. So I think those are very valuable if we use them to our advantage. And we do a lot with performance assessments in New Hampshire and, and performance assessments, you know, it's very interesting because it's, it's in context and we, we were able to do that. We got our, you know, uh, um, where the uh, feds allowed us to use performance assessment instead of a standardized test. And, and the, the data was very clear that we were, we were right on target with it. So the performance assessments are huge for kids. It gives them multiple representations, right? Multiple ways of showing your learning. And, and if your state isn't doing that, certainly at the district level and the individual classroom level, there's plenty of opportunities in, and to do it and probably have a greater impact than what any one day state test is going to do anyway. Uh, so it's things yeah, that we need to be encouraging with the, with the teachers we work with. Yeah, that's, that's a, a big part of that argument. Uh, one of the things I'm struggling with is how to get um, teachers to feel more confident in sharing the data from their performance assessments on, you know, at more of a district level, because the communities trust the teachers. They don't trust the administrators as much. They trust the teachers. Barbara, the issue that I've seen with a lot of teachers is that uh, daily instruction and what they're being evaluated on would be those performance assessments. But then if that end of the year assessment is still multiple choice, then they just don't understand why they have to do performance assessments throughout the year when the kids are just going to be bubbling in at the end of the year. And that is a valid concern. So um, we really got to get working with our districts and states to have them uh, assessing what we practice. And, 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 you know, we've done that, I think, across the deck. Um, we don't have every district participating in it, but um, as we are moving more towards competencies and away from grades, um, I think the public understanding is getting a little bit better about it. And so uh, that move, I think, is important. Yeah, and as, as true as that is, that, you know, working as much as we can to, to have some influence on state tests. And thankfully in Maryland, they, they gave our, our state science supervisor association a, a lot of influence in developing it. But that's one 45 to three minute to three hour section and with students 180 days. And we need to really work with our teachers to make sure they feel empowered to do what they know is best. They know, teachers know that a fill in the bubble test isn't telling us much about a student's ability to do science. And we need to be providing opportunities, not just in instruction, but in an assessment to make sure that students are, are, are allowed to and given opportunities to show their proficiency in, in doing this science. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where, you know, what Barbara said earlier about looking at, you know, 
what is it that we want our kids to know and be able to do when they leave, you know, K-12 education? Um, we want them to be able to be good citizens and mindful citizens and know how to problem solve and think critically about things. And those are the skills that, you know, employers look for as well. So I think really, you know, bringing that to the forefront that it's like this doesn't look like a traditional science classroom anymore. And although we do have some of these high stakes tests that may or may not look like what you're doing in the classroom, these are the skills that we want kids to take with them to make them better citizens. And I'm happy to share that chart. I, uh, my individual teachers have used that chart with parents. How come they're not memorizing what's in the book? That's, that's what worked for me. Or where is the book? So it's Why really empowered. Mark, we were just talking about this. You're not teaching me. You're not teaching yeah. us. Like everyone, the kids say, the parents say it. Like. Um, okay, so I, we are nearing the end of our hour together. So do you guys have any resources or any like final thoughts or anything you would like to you know share before we wrap up? Um, One resource that I'd really encourage folks to look at, it, especially coming back to the, the uh, – thoughts regarding equity, whether it's ELL or, or special education students, are the STEM teaching tools. It's oh, stemteachingtools.org. Yeah. Uh, uh, 65 tools now, many of them specifically dealing with equity, and most of the others certainly have a lot to say about equity. Uh, we've used those in, in a lot of our professional development here in the, in the district, and uh, have a lot of good things to say to teachers about uh, addressing the needs of their individual students. And we'll link to that too. So. And I'll say too, the tools that were put out by Achieve on um, the lesson screener and then all of the tools around three-dimensional assessment mm -hmm. are really, really helpful. They have a one-pager on phenomena, or I guess it's a two-pager, and um, they have um, some things that focus around equity and the must-haves when it comes to three-dimensional uh, assessments. So those tools are, are really, really good. I know Achieve is now through WestEd, so I can always send you that updated link. Yeah, if you want to send me the updated links, that's awesome. I can put those in the notes as well. And uh, the thing that, I mean, we, we've created a number of storylines that have gone along. We're, we're doing field testing right now with our own teachers and getting teacher feedback on that. But we have, and I sent you the link for it, uh, yeah. we have published a new STEM from the Start episode because early elementary is another, you know, kids who have learned to play school the way we've discussed playing the game, you know, changing things up early. And we are still struggling in a lot of our states in, in early elementary. And so we created this little unit that's kind of like a mini storyline, um, but it's not, um, uh, it's developed specifically for a K2 area. The standards are technically a grade one if you're looking at content, but um, it's, it's nice. And so I'm happy to share that. And I'm happy to share that chart of the, what the different job skills are, because yes. that's another one that has really serviced and helped a lot of teachers. And I'm an NGSX facilitator. So we do a lot of that training. Um, I do it with administrators. I do teacher training. So that program in and of itself, that immersion, the difficulty and the reason we just did this four weeks is because how do you do that in a remote setting? And so that's been another biggie. And I'll say too, um, talking about NGSX, um, I love that program. I am also an NGSX facilitator. Oh, good. So um, there's some really good resources on NextGen Storylines. So there are some elementary um, storylines on there if people want to to dive into those materials. And then in Illinois, we wrote um, some biology uh, curriculum that is also free access, and that is at ilscience.org. Yeah. Um, I have teachers way, using some of your storylines. I'm familiar with what? I have teachers using some of your storylines. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. Um, the resource I was going to mention, the first one is the STEM teaching tools. I really live by that one, especially STEM teaching tool number 41. It is the questioning prompt for the cross-cutting concepts. I have found that to just be um, invaluable in terms of taking 
some of the traditional labs that we've done and making them more 3D by asking the direct questioning that leads the students into those cross-cutting concepts. But also I love teachengineering.com because they have so many engineering projects that can be used for students to uh, incorporate the science and engineering practices. And if used properly, those um, science and engineering questions or problems that they're solving could really be the basis for a rich storyline and developing out your units um, across a few weeks in your course. So uh, those are my top two, STEM teaching tools and teachengineering.com. Awesome. I will link to all of those in the notes section or whatever. <laughs> I do also want to give a shout out to, to NSTA. Right now they're offering free memberships because of remote learning and they are pushing out free webinars. Um, they have Teacher Tip Tuesday webinars. They have a webinar series um, that takes place every Monday or every Wednesday um, twice once in the afternoon and once in the evening. I know yesterday they held a webinar on specifically looking at multi-language learners um, that are using the Open Syed material. Mm -hmm. And then they're also pushing out, um, they call them Science Daily Dues, which a new one comes out every day and they're meant to be, you know, used at home remotely, you know, with families. So, and um, Syed is another one that you just brought up is fantastic. Mm -hmm. their, teacher, their teacher handbook, I don't know if they've moved it out of the beta phase, but their teacher handbook is very well written. And um, uh, we have used it a lot with teachers who are not able to do the NGSX training so that they have an idea of how does the driving question board work? How does this work? Yeah, it's on their website now um, in their, I think it's in the PD section. So yep. resources, yeah. Mm -hmm. All right, we will link to all of those. Thank you so much for participating in this, and I'm so excited to share this with everybody else. Cool. Um, Making sure that your lessons are three-dimensional isn't always easy. While you don't need to include all three dimensions every single day, you do want to make sure that each dimension is regularly addressed. I developed a really simple 3D planner to help keep me focused. It helps me track which pieces I'm using in my daily lesson plans. It only takes me five minutes to fill out, and it helps me notice patterns in my own lesson planning. For example, when I first started using it, I noticed I wasn't including the cross-cutting concepts as often as I thought I was. Just by recognizing this, I was able to focus on this one piece and improve my lessons. Right now, you can grab the same template that I use for my own planning for free. Go to sadlerscience.com slash 3dplanner to grab yours. That's sadlerscience.com slash 3dplanner.